Ready for an amazing deal? BreezeLine's fiber-powered internet starting at $19.99 per month offers the reliability you deserve and security you can trust. Whether you're streaming, gaming, or working from home, we've got all your needs covered with speeds up to 1 gig and our two-year price lock guarantee. This deal gets even better with two free months of internet, free equipment, and free Wi-Fi your way to protect against cyber threats. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires July 8th, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. On this episode, we're joined by Anna Presley, who is a congresswoman-elect in Massachusetts' 7th Congressional District. She also did my book talk with me in Boston, which was so incredible. I'm going to do this because I want to fight to save girls, girls that don't even know they need saving. And I'm going to do this because this is really a furthering of a lifetime of public service. And we have the news as usual with me, Brittany Clinton-Sam. We're doing a little special for this episode is that we're doing shout outs, all of us, me, Brittany Clinton, Sam, have shout outs about the election, about different ballot initiatives and races across the country that we want you to pay attention to. And we have those interspersed in the episode. The message for this week is, you know, I talked to a lot of teachers. I used to teach, Brittany taught, Clint taught. And they asked me like, what's some advice about being a teacher in this moment? And like what I tell them is, is like, remember that young people often have the experiences before they have the language and we often penalize them for not having the language. And I know, I think we've talked about this before, but I just want to bring it up again because I'm in so many rooms now where people have had these experiences that they haven't had the language to talk about. They like are in the proximity of white supremacy, but it's a little more subtle or they are like around transphobia or they think that their gut is right about something that's up with the justice system, but they can't say it. Like just don't have the right framing for it yet. And part of our work as activists and organizers is to like help people with the language and not discount the experience because they don't have the language right in the moment. So just wanted to leave that message. We have a lot to talk about in this episode. Let's go. Hey, y'all. It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Miss Pacchetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter and Instagram. This is Clint Smith at Clint Smith the Third. I, I, I. And this is DeRay at DeRay, D-E-R-A-Y on Twitter. So, Brittany... Everybody was texting me, being like, oh, snap, I see a girl. She out here on HBO. Look at her. Um, sparkly, sparkly suit looking like a Michael Jackson jacket. She was shimmering was, I thought on she was that about stage. to moonwalk across the stage. Listen, you know, my mom taught me when you got a special event coming up, you don't dress like it's any old day. And well, I have been really excited about this live show with our friends from Pod Save America on HBO. It wasn't. It was almost live, but we were coming from Austin, Texas. And I was like, you know, they do everything bigger in Texas. So let me let me pull out these sparkles, put on the blue suede shoes. Out here. You know, I was like, if, if you're going to try to tell the people the truth, you might as well look fly while you're doing it. That's just like one of my personal life philosophies. But it was a lot of fun. Of course, Better O'Rourke was our guest, and he was inspiring and moving. And it was definitely a really Do you really, think he's really going to run time. for president, Brittany? I don't know. You know, he says that if he gets elected to the Senate, he made a promise to the people of Texas and he will complete that time, um, which I, I appreciate somebody who operates with that much integrity. I also don't think I would mind him being president. Like, I, I would at least welcome the conversation about it, you know. So um, we'll see. But I think that he is a shining example of what's possible if we are willing to dream a little bit um, and have people who are willing not just to say the thing that sounds good, but to work on what's actually right for folks. 
the other thing that happened this week is, you know, I'm not a big NBA. I just don't watch basketball or any sport for that matter. <laughs> but I did see that fight that broke out on the court the other day. And it reminded me that Yikes. basketball is back. And it literally, you know, one of the reasons that I know wait, basketball wait, season wait, this wait, year. Wait, 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 wait. The fight reminded you that basketball is back? You, know, you didn't say hockey Well, because every single boxing. trending topic <laughs> on <MMA>. Twitter was <laughs> basketball. All of them. Yeah. It was like the only thing was all basketball. And uh, I realized how out of the loop I am with, with the NBA. That was the same experience for me because I don't watch the NBA as much, but the fight was all over the timeline. And it just <laughs> is a reminder that, you know, for people who are not as plugged in, like these are the things that they're seeing. Like for some reason, like this is what crosses over and like it's not like the great dunk. Like I don't I don't know. Like it, that's just an interesting phenomenon for me. The great dunk. You sound like somebody's uncle. <laughs> with, with the with the great basket. I tuned in for maybe the first 15 minutes um, and I felt like a traitor because my father was from the south side of Chicago. So I grew up watching the Bulls. So for me to be a LeBron fan who now has to watch the Lakers play. LeBron just, James. LeBron. LeBron James. So something was just, <laughs> was just a miss in my spirit. But yeah, it was like everything is topsy-turvy in the NBA right now. Cleveland fans are Lakers fans and it's just, it's all a mess. Speaking of LeBron, have any of y'all watched The Shop? I've heard it's good. The Shop is great. And I think it, you know, it reflects LeBron transitioning, you know, to become the the media mogul that he's inevitably going to become, I think. And I mean, I, you know, it's, it's hard for me to understand how anybody could watch the NBA and not be a fan of LeBron James. Even if you don't watch the NBA, I think LeBron is, he just impresses you on, on so many different fronts with his sort of integrity, with his sort of justice-oriented vision of the world with his, uh, you know, the decision, the one he got Drake out here to come out and tell the truth and talk <laughs> yeah, about he things did. he didn't talk about. Whoa. He was like know. Drake's life coach in that episode. Oh like gosh. he really well, helped he, Drake work through it. Did he tell the truth, Clint? Or did he tell, you know, he, he sort of blamed it on Kanye. Then Pusha T came out and was like, wasn't Kanye. So that was a little yikesy. But the thing about that fight that I thought was so interesting is that, you know, LeBron clearly was just like over it. Now, LeBron is twice the age of half of his teammates anyway, and I think he's just like, look, it's like people who go to work, and they're like, these are my colleagues, this is my job, but that's not my people, people. And, like, Chris Paul is the person that he goes on trips to Italy with in the summer, and so he's like, look, let me pull my mans over, walk him across, and then keep it moving. Fam, listen, so the shop airs on HBO, and I think LeBron now also has a deal with Showtime, which is a pretty big deal because a lot of these premium cable networks require you to have exclusive contracts. So LeBron is out here playing chess, not checkers, right? He's got all the exclusive interviews, and he's like, you know, switching up basketball um, every couple years. So salute to somebody who's trying to do it for the culture. I like LeBron. It'll be interesting to see what this whole generation of athletes does post sport you know like what when lebron retires like what will it be like to have a, a lebron james mini series documentary thing or like a carmelo anthony or like a steph curry all of them have production companies now and like to think that there'll be like a whole genre of like athlete produced documentaries and movies is just so different so i'm interested to see like what that looks like i think lebron is sort of opening space that a lot of people will benefit from. Hey y'all, it's Sam. So I wanna tell you about two things that are gonna be on the ballot this election. The first is Amendment 5 in Florida. Now this is a bad amendment and it's bad for one particular reason. It requires a supermajority vote. 
meaning two-thirds of the state legislature, in order to raise taxes. Now, that might sound nice, but in reality what that means is, let's say we have a great night on election night, Andrew Gillum wins, and we want a better education system, we want universal health care, Medicare for all, we want a range of other programs to help particularly low-income communities, communities of color, folks who need resources and don't have them. What this amendment will do if it passes is make it virtually impossible to fund any of that. And that's because it will require Republican support to do any of that stuff, to pass any of those tax increases, to fund any of those programs, to tax the wealthy, to do any of those things that we know are important to actually raising the revenue to make these types of important programs that impact people's lives possible. So vote no on Amendment 5. And the second thing is Amendment 1 in Nashville, Tennessee. This is an amendment that a Community Oversight Now, which is a local organizing group there, along with other organizations, have fought to put on the ballot successfully despite a whole bunch of police union opposition. And this amendment would create a Community Oversight Board of the Metropolitan Nashville Police Department, the first time ever that Nashville would have such a board. This is really important uh, to making sure that the police are being held accountable in Nashville, to having community oversight and the ability to independently investigate complaints of police misconduct. So if you're in Nashville, show up, vote. Early voting has already started. Vote for Amendment 1. It'll bring community oversight to Nashville. So for my news, there's a new study by researchers at Northwestern University, Harvard University, and the Institute for Social Research in Norway, who looked at every available field experiment on hiring discrimination between 1989 and 2015. And Herman Lopez at Vox did some great reporting on this and talked about how the study found that anti-Black racism in hiring has been unchanged since at least 1989, while anti-Latino racism may have decreased modestly. And so they look at these two kinds of experiments. There's the resume and there's the in-person audits. In the first, researchers send out resumes with sort of similar levels of education, experience, so on. And the names differ so that the resumes have like a stereotypically black or Latino name and others have a stereotypically white name. And this is an experiment that's been done in social science sort of over and over, been replicated many times. Um, and in the second, applicants go in person to apply for a job, and they each share similar qualifications, similar sort of education levels, job levels, experience levels, uh, but some are white and others are black or brown. And so these are the only differences. What they concluded on average with taking all these studies together is that white applicants receive 36% more callbacks than equally qualified African-Americans, while white applicants receive on average 24% more callbacks than Latinos. For my social science methodologists out there, the researchers deployed a, a range of controls to verify their research. They measured outcomes in different ways, controlling for socioeconomic status, for geography, for unemployment rates. But they concluded, quote, in all models, we see little evidence of a reduction in hiring discrimination against African-Americans over time. And this is a pretty remarkable thing. And it's, a, you know, it, it could be perceived as one of those sort of water is wet studies. But I think it's really important that we have evidence and robust social science to demonstrate that black people and Latino people are, are continuing to be discriminated against in the workplace and that this has a real material implications for for somebody's ability to get a job, um, to get certain qualities of jobs that have, you know, a living wage that allow them to pay their bills. So important study and important means of sort of pulling all these studies that have been done on this issue together and, and just reminds us uh, what we're up against. One of the things that was interesting about this study, it reminded me of the 
massive divide between the people who want to say and pretend that racism doesn't exist and the people who actually do the work of investigating the subject uh, from a research and data point of view and, and actually beginning to quantify the extent to which racism exists, right? Where we can say you are 36% less likely uh, to be called back if you are black or 24% if you're Latino. And just the massive divide, right, between you know, those who just pretend this doesn't exist or say, where's the evidence? And you can actually quantify this stuff. Like the science really is quite clear. Uh, and, and I think about this in the context of sort of this both sides media narrative where you'll just sort of quote both sides of an argument without really investigating the data behind it. And the data is quite clear here that on so many different levels, whether it is having the resume and just having your name on paper uh, be perceived a particular way or you know, being called in and being in person and being discriminated against, or once you're hired, your experience in the workplace, how much you're being paid, your likelihood of being promoted, whether you're being represented in the workplace, you know, all of these things we can begin to really measure and quantify uh, and then hopefully begin to solve. Uh, but we can only get there if we're really serious about you know, the fact that these things exist and we're actively rejecting, particularly in the media, these attempts to sort of depict this as a question, like, does racism still exist? Or, you know, is there racism in hiring? Is there workplace discrimination still? Like, these questions are pretty well established, the answers, and we should be clear about that. And I think the second piece that's interesting about this study is that, you know, we are looking at, oftentimes there's this narrative that things are just getting better, right? So since 1989, I think there's a sense that like, for black folks, things are, you know, better than 1989, although still pretty bad. But that's not true across the board, right? That might be true in some situations, in some contexts, and on some indicators, but certainly not all of them. Uh, what this study shows is that in terms of you know, hiring discrimination, things have not gotten better. Certainly when you look at economics writ large, things have actually gotten worse. Uh, you know, I think the wealth gap is probably the biggest sort of aggregate indicator that, that demonstrates that things have gotten worse. But I think we do need to be clear about what things have gotten better, what things have gotten worse, and make progress where progress continues to need to be made. You know, um, reading this was unfortunately unsurprising in some real ways. We've talked about how Ban the Box has had some unintended consequences because of the ways in which hiring managers discriminate against names and in resumes, as you've already talked about. You know, we often quote the stat that white high school dropouts have more wealth than black and Latinx college graduates. Uh, we talk all the time about the wealth gap and wage inequality. So frankly, the fact that hiring discrimination and racism in employment still exists is not at all surprising to me. Frankly, it shouldn't be surprising to any of us, especially folks who listen to this podcast. But the fact that it's as bad as it was during a time when the cassette tape was the main mode of delivery to listen to music, that is sad. That is astounding in some real ways. And that's not to say that we shouldn't celebrate the wins, but so often we want to say, well, things aren't as bad as they used to be 50 years ago. Things aren't even as bad as they used to be five years ago. And that is true in some respects, and we should celebrate those things. But in other respects, it's really not. These are the moments when it can be really hard not to view racism as intractable, as so deeply entrenched in this country that we're not going to be able to solve it. We have to keep hope alive. We have to continue the work. We have to make sure that we are digging wells um, for the future that we may not even drink from. But that one was hard to swallow. That one was hard to read, I have to admit. Um, I'm going to keep pushing. But man, that's terrible. 
So I found a, a few things really interesting. One is that when it came to Latinos is that they found that some evidence of a decline in discrimination over the past 25 years, but they also noted that the field experiments that included Latinos were so small, the evidence was inconclusive at best. Uh, with Black people, it was conclusive and bad. And, you know, it's important to remember that the study refers to the subject groups as African-Americans and Latinos. There aren't like super tight definitions of either group, but I wanted to just know and point out what we already know to be true is that there are people who are both Latino and Black. So there's more work to be done to study the impact of discrimination on Latinos in the workplace. And again, this study was about a point of entry. So like initial hiring decisions, it doesn't cover things like wage negotiations and, and sort of later parts of the hiring process. It also made me think about how we talk about diversity and inclusion, right? The diversity is often about bodies, inclusion is about culture. And then what you find is that a lot of places sort of have figured out that they need to hire more complex staff, like in terms of the composition, but haven't actually worked to change the culture of the institutions that become more equitable. And you see that on the front end. And what I think the report does really well is sort of highlight that, like, yes, attitudes about race and racism are like polling uh, in a positive direction, in a way that we've not seen before in the country. With that said, at the same time, the study notes, or the authors note, that assessments of more subtle forms of racial stereotypes and measures of unconscious bias have shown relatively little change over time. And the reason that that matters is that it's those sort of subtle stereotypes and like sort of seemingly small moments of bias that show up in resume reviews, that show up on phone interviews, that show up in, in like how people judge the clothes of people who come in. Like that is really important. And, and what I'd say is I think about in all of our work is that sometimes we confuse awareness with outcomes. And I think that the awareness around race and racism is like so much better than it's been. I think about with the police, you know, we're talking about police violence in ways that we've never talked about in public in a generation, which is really powerful. The outcomes actually haven't changed. So you think about the police, like the same number of people getting killed by the police. Uh, when you think about this with discrimination in the workplace, it's, it's the same. And what the authors sort of point to is that if the concern is about outcomes and we need to seriously consider strategies like affirmative action, and that is like something that they explicitly name, uh, if it is about awareness, then like we should have a million more trainings, right? And that the work around awareness and outcomes aren't always the same thing. So my news is about North Carolina, where there is a voter ID amendment on the ballot this year. And that means that if that passes, there will be a photo ID requirement in order to vote in North Carolina. Again, North Carolina is a very important swing state, a state with a large black population. And what's interesting about this is not only the fact that the Republicans there uh, voted to put this on the ballot as a strategy to suppress the vote, but also the history of North Carolina and voter suppression. This isn't the first time that a photo ID requirement has been on the books in North Carolina. They actually did pass a photo ID requirement in 2013. And that was in place for the March 2016 primary, but then a federal court threw it out, completely undid that law that, that had been passed. So now Republicans are trying to put that in the state constitution to make it harder for that to be overturned by the courts. But when that was in place during that election in 2016, there are a host of cases that have been documented of folks who, particularly older voters, people of color, people who uh, do not have driver's licenses, students who had a more difficult time, and many of them were not able to vote at all during that election. Uh, and just to, I know we've talked about voter ID requirements in the past, you know, 25% of 
black residents nationwide do not have a photo ID compared to only 8% of white residents. So clearly there is a disproportionate impact on black voters. Uh, so this is just a bigger part of you know this broader voter ID conversation. But again, pay attention. This is going to be on the ballot in North Carolina. This is a part of a broader strategy where uh, state legislatures have failed to pass these things or had them overturned to just put them on the ballot and enact voter suppression that way. So we have to defeat them this November. As a reminder, when cases about voter suppression and disenfranchisement went all the way to the Supreme Court regarding North Carolina, the Supreme Court ruled that the GOP discriminated against African Americans in the process of voting with, quote, surgical precision. It is very difficult in these days of covert racism, of covert suppression and disenfranchisement, to have um, clear evidence to these things that is incontrovertible, no matter who you are and what your perspective is or how much privilege you have. So the fact that the highest court in our land actually said that discrimination on voting rights in North Carolina occurs with surgical precision matters. North Carolina, as we talked about before, is ground zero for modern day voter suppression and disenfranchisement. And I'm using both of those words intentionally because voter suppression are a lot of the obstacles that are put in people's way. So things like voter ID, the closing of polling places, the purging of people from voting rolls without their notification disenfranchisement is something altogether more formal. So when we talk about the importance of Amendment 4 in Florida and formerly incarcerated individuals regaining their right to vote, that is disenfranchisement. Both of those things are happening in North Carolina and frankly in a lot of the states across the union. If you go to a polling place and they try to turn you away, demand a provisional ballot, as long as you are registered, that provisional ballot will be counted. If you see or experience other problems, call 86 Six hour vote. That's eight six six hour vote to make sure that the proper legal authorities can take action on what's happening in your community. But even after the midterms are over, we have to keep fighting voter suppression and disenfranchisement. This fight has to continue all year long. So in North Carolina, it'll be written on the ballot as, are you for or against a constitutional amendment to require voters to provide photo identification before voting in person? That is what the language on the ballot will say. The rest of the ballot language, which isn't actually on the ballot itself, like goes on to then say the legislature would make laws providing the details of acceptable and unacceptable forms of photographic identification. Okay, so for those of you in North Carolina, you are against a constitutional amendment to require voters to provide photo identification before voting in person. That's the top line, is that we don't need photo identification. Voter fraud is not actually happening. Uh, the only recorded statistical amount of voter fraud is like 0.0003%. So it's not happening. But what this ballot initiative does in North Carolina is that it, it then allows the legislature to decide which of the IDs actually is eligible to be used. And that's where the devil is in the details. So we've already seen North Carolina try and restrict people's ability to vote and suppress the vote is that there's no reason to trust this legislature to make a, even if this did pass, to make a photo ID rule that would like have a host of IDs available. We've seen other states do things like restrict people from being able to use their college ID or being able to use any other form of ID, but only requiring or only accepting things like driver's licenses. Like, what if you don't drive, right? So 
there's no reason to believe the legislature in North Carolina, like their intent here. And voter fraud is not actually happening at any place across the country in any significant amount. And there's definitely no wave. What is happening, though, is that people are voting in ways that are bucking the trend. So when we look at some of the early voting data coming out of some of the early states, it is like three, four times what happened in some of the last elections. And that's scaring uh, the right. And the right is ratcheting up this rhetoric of voter fraud because they are worried that people are going to vote. And again, when they vote, they'll lose. And just to give some raw numbers to to what DeRay alluded to with the, the sort of almost negligible number of people who are found to have committed voter fraud, it's 31 cases of voter impersonation and fraud from the years 2000 to 2014 out of 1 billion votes. 31 cases out of 1 billion votes over a 14-year period. So, so voter fraud, for statistical purposes, just doesn't happen in a statistically significant sort of way. And I think in, people have been talking about this more, and, and I think it's become more, more evident in the face of the sort of unapologetic effort to, to suppress the vote from, from folks on the right. But like, what I hope moving forward is that Democrats run on a, on a similarly unapologetic sort of platform of voting rights, right, in which they try to make sure that Puerto Rico and the District of Columbia have seats in the Senate. Uh, in which they try to make sure that everyone in every state, there's automatic voter registration when you turn 18, that there should be a national holiday for voting, that we should extend early voting. I mean, the very fact that we are in a moment in which like one party is advocating to make voting as easy as possible for as many people as possible, and the other party is trying to make it egregiously difficult in the face of empirical evidence that shows that the rationale that they have for doing so is is largely made up, tells you about the times that we're living in. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned, there's more to come. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Mom, I got the job in Manhattan. Do you have a warm enough winter coat? What about your car? I'm selling it with Kelly Blue Book Instant Cash Offer. How? I enter my license plate number, miles, condition, upload photos, and boom, an official cash offer from a local dealership. A cash offer instantly? Oh, did you call Aunt Stella? She's right there in Massachusetts. Mom, I literally just got the job. Not everything is as simple as selling your car with Kelly Blue Book Instant Cash Offer. Price it, fix it, trade it, sell it, kbb.com it. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. What's going on, y'all? For my shout-outs for the election, I wanted to bring two things back to the front of your mind, put it back on your radar. The first is that Florida currently bans people with felony records from voting, practicing law, or serving on a jury. Across the United States, 6.1 million people who are incarcerated and formerly incarcerated can't vote. 
There are some states that prohibit people from voting while they're on probation or parole or have unpaid fines, but Florida is only one of four, along with Iowa, Kentucky, and Virginia, that still bars formerly incarcerated people from voting indefinitely unless their rights are restored by the governor. And according to the Brennan Center for Justice, Florida disenfranchises more citizens than Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, Mississippi, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Tennessee combined. 10% of the state's adult population is ineligible to vote because of their criminal record, including one in five black Americans. Florida counts 533 different infractions as felonies, including crimes like, quote, disturbing a lobster trap and trespassing on a construction site. Sometimes people say that you, for Florida, you come on vacation and you leave on probation. So there's a ballot initiative to give formerly incarcerated people the right to vote. Please vote for that. It's so important. And secondly, a shout out to Leslie Cockburn in the Virginia 5th Congressional District. She is running against Denver Riggleman and and she is currently neck and neck. If you're in D.C., uh, please get down there. They need as many people working on the campaign as possible. Please get down there and canvas if you can. Phone bank. If you're in the DMV area, get down there. It's a great opportunity to work and get some some real work done in, in a swing district that's not far from you. So please support Leslie. She does incredible work. Former journalist. Going to flip that seat. Really important to support her. It's going to be amazing. Shout out to Leslie. Help push her over the line. So normally the news that we bring out of this administration is about covert things that happened under the radar while that guy is busy tweeting and carrying on, but that have already been done, things from the past that we are just finding out about. But we now know about something that is potentially extremely damaging ahead of the actual decision being made. And so there's a memo floating around in the administration that talks about a potential plan to essentially subvert the intentions behind Title IX and codify gender as being binary and something that must match the gender assigned at birth. In other words, this administration is contemplating literally defining transgender out of existence in a political sense and narrowing the definition of gender such that it could never be changed from what is on your birth certificate. Um, Unfortunately, this is not the only attack that this administration has waged against transgender people, but it is the most heinous and could affect 1.4 million transgender people in this country. So essentially, under Obama, there were small and large moves that were made to protect the honor and dignity of multiple gender identities and trans people in healthcare, education, housing, criminal justice, and other civil rights venues. Um, a lot of those things have been undone and without much conversation. Um, but this, again, we, we know about this because this memo has been circulating and the New York Times reported on it. And we've also seen pieces in Vox and other places. But most importantly, we've been hearing the voices of the trans community. If you go on to Twitter, you can check out the hashtag won't be erased. Remember, don't put an apostrophe in there. The hashtag is won't be erased. And you can hear from the people most directly impacted. Here were two tweets that I saw that really affected me um, pretty immediately. One from Miss Emily Tired that said, I came out in 2015, finally actually happy to be alive. Met an amazing woman who loves me going back to school to be an RN. Hashtag won't be erased. And another tweet from Skeptic Alice that says, you can change regulations, you can pack the courts, you can pass laws, but you will never change who I am. You can throw me in prison with men for using the women's room, but I'll still be a woman. I won't be erased. 
I think it's really important for us to remember that we don't have to be trans to care about this or to fight against this. Why? Because those of us who are cis enjoy privileges that trans people do not. And just like white folks need to work on other white folks and men need to go out and get other men together, I, as a cis person, need to go out and get other cisgender people together um, and amplify the voices of trans people as I do that. Lilla Watson, who's an Aboriginal activist, once said, if you have come here to help me, then you are wasting your time. But if you have come here because you realize our fates are bound up with one another's, then let us work together. The simple fact of the matter is, unless we're all free, it's not truly freedom. And I'm not free until our trans family is free. And so I'm deeply disturbed by this, but I'm hoping that the fact that we know about this memo before it has become the regulation and the rule of this administration, that we can fight back. So there are so many things wrong with this memo by the Trump administration. I think the first part of this is how they try to couch their reasoning behind sort of this pseudoscientific facade uh, where they say, uh, and this is a quote from the administration, sex means a person's status as male or female based on immutable biological traits identifiable by or before birth. The sex listed on a person's birth certificate as originally issued shall constitute definitive proof of a person's sex unless rebutted by reliable genetic evidence. And, you know, what's clear if you look at, you know, the actual science behind this, I mean, we know that gender identity, first of all, is not uh, binary, that it is a spectrum. Uh, And so is sex, right? That, in fact, it is not something where there are only, you know, two binary possibilities and, you know, everybody is is defined that by institutions in ways that uh, are always consistent with uh, how they view themselves and how they are born. And like, that's just not true, right? The science is clear that it is much more complex than that, that there is a spectrum here, right? And that our policies should reflect uh, the realities of people's lives and identification. And I think the second piece that's also interesting is the New York Times article that described this decision itself was using language that actually erases the existence of uh, transgender individuals. So for example, I'm just going to read a quote from this article. It says, the new definition would essentially eradicate federal recognition of the estimated 1.4 million Americans who have opted to recognize themselves surgically or otherwise as a gender other than the one they were born into, right? So this actual article describing this decision was reinforcing the idea that people are just opting to recognize themselves as another gender, as if this is just a choice, uh, other than, and then it says other than the one they were born into, Right. And so there are so many different levels to this. And I think, you know, first of all, there's an administration that is defining people out of existence using, you know, pseudoscience. And then there is a media apparatus that actually uses language that reinforces that and then makes it harder to actually challenge those ideas. And what's also clear is that this is uh, work that this administration has been committed to and a sort of project that this administration has been committed to. Uh, since day one, right? I think about the new guidelines they put out a few months ago that make it more difficult for trans inmates to be housed based on their gender identity instead of the gender assigned to them at birth. Um, the new guidelines that, that the Trump administration imposed that, that stripped away the, the sort of friendlier and, and more tolerant and more uh, embracing uh, guidelines that the Obama administration had, the, the new ones say, quote, they will use biological sex as the initial determination and that inmates own gender identity will be only be recognized for housing in quote rare cases and for advocates in the lgbtq community the there's a huge concern that if someone identifies and presents as a woman for example but is placed in prison with men 
that she's going to be at a far higher risk for rape and sexual assault. And, and that's not an empty fear. I mean, we have a 2016 report from the Movement Advancement Project and also the Center for American Progress that found that trans inmates are at a very high risk of sexual abuse in prison, uh, whereas about 1.2% of heterosexual inmates report sexual assault by other inmates in prisons and jail. 24.1% uh, of trans inmates report at least one sexual assault. So the, the difference in the risk of, uh, for trans inmates is staggering uh, and concerning. So this memo that's been circulating from the Trump administration is something that cannot just be understood as, as rhetoric and cannot just be understood as, as a distraction. It's, it's something that we, we have to take seriously because as has been exemplified through the, their work that they've already done on the, on the military front with regard to trans folks and on the prison front with regard to trans folks that this is going to hugely impact people's lives and and is something that has the potential to to cause real physical harm and emotional harm to to so many people so I just say a couple more things. Everything that everybody said has resonated. Uh, one is a reminder that Trump didn't do this. He didn't make up the sentiment that the memo references, that he's actually just the person codifying it and trying to put it into a particular type of practice. Uh, if Trump becomes like the only target and if Trump becomes like the uh, the sole embodiment of transphobia, then we're losing sight of the fact that there is a culture that is transphobic. And when Sam, Sam, when you brought up that the article itself, like doesn't use affirming language about uh, the trans community, like that is a reminder of how insidious the transphobia presents itself. And like part of our work is to combat that. And we can do that at the dinner table in our classrooms, like in meetings and in culture, like that's everybody's work to do. So we have to focus on Trump because what he'll do at scale is just so dangerous and damaging. But remember that like the only way that this even is like seen as a legitimate proposal from from his party or to even the party is because a lot of people hold these transphobic ideas and like they are just looking for a way for them to surface. So that's the first thing. The second is that like, we know that people won't be erased in in like lived reality if the memo passes. But what is true is that the way that the government functions is that so many things are determined by uh, the counts at scale, that so many federal formulas, so many state formulas, the way resources are allocated, the way we think about solutions, like the way we think about medicine and the allocation of resources. So even if we get this overturned, if this gets enacted and we get it overturned later, which I have faith we will do if it gets enacted, it's like the seemingly small period of time where people just aren't counted will have repercussions that will last a lifetime. And that so much of our work is centered on making sure that we actually have a firm understanding of how people live their lives today so that we can plan better as a society and certainly as a government. Uh, and the last thing I'll say is that there are some concrete things that we can uh, we can do. Uh, there was somebody on Twitter uh, with the the Twitter name Courtney AJ, so C O U R T N E Y A J, and Courtney tweeted out a list of uh, things that people can do. So I'll just read a couple. One is that bring attention to Yes on Three in Massachusetts. So uh, Courtney notes that there's a ballot initiative coming to vote on November sixth in Massachusetts that would repeal protections for transgender and non-binary people in public accommodations, and it's the first statewide vote to strip trans people of their rights ever. Uh, so the call is to vote yes on three to protect the rights of the trans community. Also uh, contribute to trans organizations. So make sure that you are, that we're following uh, the lead of, of the trans community on these issues and making sure that we're like listening and learning. 
And the third is remember, and I already said this, but I'll say it again. Remember that like we actually have to fight transphobia in communities because that is what creates, like transphobia is what creates the conditions for these sort of policies to even surface. Hey y'all, it's Brittany. I want to talk to you about two really important races happening right now that will be decided in this all-important midterm. There are lots of candidates you've probably heard me talk about, but I want to talk about two that you may not know as much about. Paulette Jordan is a Democrat from Idaho, and that is a place where it is really, really hard for Democrats to break through. But here's what's so important. If elected, Paulette Jordan will be the first Native American governor ever in a U.S. state. That's right, you heard me ever. In the land to which her people are indigenous, she would be the very first Native American governor in this country's history. I don't know about you, but it makes me equally frustrated and hopeful that someone like Paulette Jordan is standing up. She's standing up for expanding Medicaid. She's standing up for better gun control. I really hope to see her win. And I hope that if you check her out and you like what you see, volunteer, donate, sign up to knock on some doors or make some phone calls on her behalf. Because what happens in state houses and in governor's mansions matters for all of us. I also want to talk to you about my dear friend, Lucy McBath. She is the mother of Jordan Davis, a seven 17-year-old high school student who was sitting and playing music in a car with his friends at a gas station in Jacksonville, Florida, when he was gunned down by a racist vigilante named Michael Dunn. Lucy McBath is one of the most important examples I've ever seen in my lifetime of what it means to move from victim to victor. She lost her son, and instead of collapsing inward, she decided to stand up for other families and ensure that this doesn't happen to them too. She's become an advocate and an activist in her own right, a champion for gun reform. She put her name forward and won a very, very tight runoff to be the Democratic nominee for the 6th District of Georgia to replace a Republican and hopefully help us take back the house. So check out Lucy McBath. Her story is incredible, but her fight is unmatched. And I know that she'll fight for the people of Georgia and people all across America. Okay, so my news, what I love about this part of the podcast is that we all learn something every week. And what I learned this week is that Utah is going to be the first state in the country to lower the blood alcohol level uh, to 0. 0.05, that would be the new legal limit. So in every state across the country right now, it's 0. 0.08. So if your blood alcohol level is above 0. 0.08, then you are legally uh, unfit to drive. On December 30th, Utah will become the first state to make it illegal to drive with a blood alcohol level of 0. 0.05 or higher, rather than the 0. 0.08 standard. Uh, in every state. So it'll be the strictest. Uh, they're not the only state that's tried to do this. So New York and Delaware considered uh, doing it. Hawaii and Washington also tried and like they weren't successful. So that was just interesting. Like it'll be interesting to see like what effect it'll have. I also uh, was reading about how some of the people who are against this are like the restaurant lobby, that they're actually really nervous about people not buying alcohol in their restaurants because of the new, uh, the lowered blood alcohol level. And the last thing that I thought was really interesting in the parallel to larger justice work is that the way we got to 0. 0.08 in the first place is that uh, Clinton in 2000 passed a bill, like Congress passed a bill and Clinton signed it, that required states to have a 0. 0.08 standard by 2004 or they'd start losing federal highway funds. 
And guess what? By 2005, every state and the District of Columbia had passed the 0.08 limit. And I say that because, you know, one of the things that we were pressing the Obama administration on was like, will you condition DOJ funding on requiring police departments to submit data in a certain way or like or having use of force policies that look a certain way that the federal government has has used its influence at times to to like really press for things around safety. And there's no reason why they can't do that with mass incarceration in a productive way or policing in a productive way. And I learning that the DUI limit was set because the federal government essentially forced it on uh, states, uh, like reminded me that the federal government has an incredible uh, amount of power to like push states to do what we think is right. What I learned in this article was that actually across the world, most countries have a lower limit than 0.08. Uh, most countries have 0.05, uh, which is what Utah is trying to implement. Uh, so, you know, I think there there's also debate in the research community about whether 0.05 is sort of the threshold when driving becomes much more dangerous or it's 0.08. And I think that was also heartening that at least they were using some degree of science when thinking about this threshold, because Lord knows a lot of the things that are happening nowadays have absolutely no scientific backing. And the last thing that was interesting about this limit was thinking about this from the perspective of policing and incarceration, uh, because, you know, as you know, once you pass that limit, if you're caught, then like that subjects you to criminal penalties and, you know, loss of driver's license and, and a range of other things uh, that can really be devastating for somebody. And so uh, trying to think about, like, I didn't get from this article what the impact would be on potentially on incarceration rates. So how many people are stopped at 0.05, between 0.05 and 0.08? And like, would that lead to a lot more people getting arrested and potentially incarcerated and all of these other collateral consequences, which often are not thought of in the interest of public safety? Yeah, I learned a lot from from this article. And I hadn't spent a lot of time thinking about the sort of formulation of the threshold of what constitutes as driving drunk and what, what doesn't constitute as that. And, and part of it is this, it's a reminder that these numbers are not objective phenomenon. And I think that we talk all the time about what constitutes as criminal behavior is not objective and it is largely a decision that someone or a group of people make um, and impose that sometimes differently on different groups of people. And so so this was a, a sort of reminder of the ways in which these these things aren't static, like they're not written in stone. And I think that that's something important for us to remember in the context of, of all laws and, and of laws that we deem to be unjust and of laws that we, we think need to be changed. You know, I remember going to my private elite, mostly white high school where um, underage drinking was unfortunately very common and a chapter of Mothers Against Drunk Driving or MAD became much more active at our school, doing a lot to discourage young people from drinking underage, drinking and driving, doing a lot to discourage parents from supplying alcohol themselves. And the organizing of MAD and other groups is a lesson in what happens when you keep your hand on the plow over a long period of time. You know, we've become a very instantaneous culture, and that's not to say that urgency is not always important in social justice because people are suffering right now, today, but it is to say um, that the process of change sometimes can take many years and generations. And so I'm just thinking about all of those announcements in high school and all of those reminders before prom and before homecoming um, and, and after graduation about being responsible. And I'm thinking about 
all of the organizing efforts that were at work behind the scenes that I didn't fully understand, but that I better understand now as an organizer myself. And I think that there's a lesson to be learned there, especially in this moment when we have to be determined to push for justice beyond a single administration or, or the era of a single person. That's the news. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night. No matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale, even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch when it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great. Your home is your place of peace. It's clean. It's welcoming. <sighs> and it's definitely not crawling with invading insects if you use Ortho Home Defense Max. Use it indoors on non-porous surfaces to treat and prevent cockroaches, spiders, and ants for up to 12 months. So your home can stay your place of peace, your work-from-home office, and your family's headquarters. Kill bugs inside, keep bugs outside, and love your home. Visit ortho.com for more. The first race that I'm shouting out is Lauren Underwood. She's a 31-year-old registered nurse and former public health advisor to the Obama administration. She's a black woman, and she's running in Illinois in a district that is leaning Republican, but she won the primary, and people are really shocked there, and she has a chance to be one of these races that really flips, uh, that helps us flip the House. Now, one of the reasons why I want to shout her out is that She's a part of this wave of, of younger people who never thought about themselves as involved in politics in this way, but was called to action because the person who currently holds that seat said that they would never vote against healthcare for people and then voted against healthcare. And as a nurse, she was like, that's just not, that's just not right. And like, I want to be one of those people who's in, in positions of power to help people out. When you go to her campaign website, underwoodforcongress.com, you see that it is about a set of issues with like real plans. So, you know, she talks about reducing gun violence, education, the environment, and I'm heartened by her work in the healthcare space as like a fresh and necessary voice that is like representing a different set of people in Congress. And my second shout out goes to something that we've covered a lot on the pod. It's about non-unanimous juries. So you already know that Louisiana and Oregon are the two states in the country where it only takes 10 of the 12 people in the jury to convict you of some felonies. In Louisiana on election day, It'll be Amendment 2, and you want to vote yes on Amendment 2 because a yes vote will change the law to require the unanimous agreement of all of the jurors. We know already that the non-unanimous juries were based in racism, that when you look back at the state legislature, they clearly intended to dilute the impact of black people sitting on juries. So if you're in Louisiana, if you know anybody in Baton Rouge, or if you know anybody in New Orleans or any of the towns, whatever, tell them to vote yes on Amendment 2 in Louisiana. 
And now my conversation with Congresswoman-elect in Massachusetts 7th Congressional District, Ayanna Presley. Ayanna, it is so good to have you on Pate of the People. Thank you for the invitation. It was wonderful to host you here. You have such an incredible story, and there's so much that I still don't know, even though we had that conversation in public. You started out as a Boston city councilor, but what got you even involved in that? Like, what was the moment that you were like, I'm going to run for the city council. I think that the city council is like a place where I can make a change. Okay. Well, here's the truth. I was an aide on the federal level for 16 years for, for Congressman Joseph P. Kennedy II, uh, who was actually the congressman for the very seat that I'm the congresswoman elect for. Uh, he preceded my opponent. And I worked for 11 years for United States Senator John Kerry. But in that time, you know, it's like you have a job and your work, right? And so that was my job, which I was very passionate about and found great joy, reward, and purpose in that. But my work was that of youth development. And so I was active on any nonprofit board that one could be dedicated specifically to the safety, development, and health and wellness of women and girls and uh, dedicated to diversifying the leadership pipeline so we could achieve greater leadership parity and representation around decision-making tables and the corridors of power. In doing that nonprofit work, I was meeting young girls and giving them my cell phone number, and they were calling me at all hours of the night. Uh, My uncle keeps touching me. Can you help me? I know you went through the same thing. My boyfriend's pressuring me to have sex. I think I'm pregnant. Can I come to your house and take a a test? My uh, father kicked out me and my girlfriend when I came out. Uh, Can we stay with you for the night? And, and, And it goes on and on and on. And so, you know, I continued to have open arms and an open home, but it was clear to me that this was not sustainable. And what it really spoke to was that there was a deficit in gender-specific and responsive programming policies and protocols, that there had been um, such an emphasis on what needed to be done to support our black and brown boys that are at unproven risk. And girls had gotten lost in the narrative. And after, you know, a number of people had asked me to consider a run, I said no a number of times. And then I just literally just woke up and had an epiphany. I said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this because I want to fight to save girls, girls that don't even know they need saving. And I'm going to do this because this is really a furthering of a lifetime of public service. I was reminded early on how tribal and parochial uh, Boston is and why my candidacy was considered to be, at the outset, incredibly disruptive. So uh, ultimately, that's why I decided to run. You've been so vocal about about women and girls, about survivors of sexual abuse, I think as a part of your own narrative and as a part of the impetus and the work that you just shared. And so I appreciate you sharing that. How were you able to to sort of do the things in office around those issues particularly that you that you wanted to do and 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 if not um, or if you didn't get to complete them all because you know we both know that change sometimes at the structure level is just longer than we want it to be uh, what is the work that needs to continue and is there a way for you to do that in Congress um, when I joined the council I created my own policy committee. And and again, that was disruptive because I wasn't going about building power through traditional constructs. I wasn't running for council president, you know, at the time. I wasn't looking to be on the Committee of Ways and Means. I created my own committee, the Committee on Healthy Women, 
families and communities to work on those issues that disproportionately and adversely impact women and girls, from human trafficking to domestic violence uh, to sexual assault to fighting for more women in police and fire in the trades and the growth of women-owned small businesses. I also named trauma in this committee because the health of the individual, the family, and the community are inextricably linked. And it is my experience that trauma is really choking at the promise of families and um, of whole communities. And so the committee also works on those big, you know, issues uh, um, like poverty and addressing violence in all forms and reducing trauma in our communities. And then legislatively, we had many successes. We were able to um, write by partnering with advocates in Boston Public Schools a comprehensive sex and health education curriculum that included sexuality, healthy relationships, that is culturally competent, medically accurate, and age-appropriate, includes abstinence and increased access to condoms. We also were able to uh, revise a very outdated policy to support expectant and parenting teens because I want to break cycles of poverty. And we know that the academic and life trajectory of a child is directly linked to the education level of their parents, especially their mother. Uh, also, the issue of human trafficking, great strides made there culturally and legislatively around reducing the demand. Uh, we also grew the number of women in the trades specifically um, because I wanted more women to see this as a viable high wage earning job career. Specifically, there are three times more women in the building trades now than when I was first elected. And 50 percent of that workforce are women of color. And so that's the sort of work that I'll continue on in Congress. Now, your, your slogan was change can't wait. What does that mean in practice for you? Like going into this new role, what does what does that mean? Well, I think we ushered in a new paradigm shift, not only in that we defied um, conventional wisdom, assumptions, and narratives about who had a right to run. I mean, I think people think because I was an aide for 16 years and an elected official for eight, that people were just excited this was happening. You know, that is not true. This is a dark blue uh, <laughs> commonwealth, a dark blue district. And then moreover, although my story of being reared by a single parent, having a brilliant father who simply was sick, battling substance abuse um, and opioid addiction specifically, in and out of the criminal justice system for 14 years, uh, being a survivor of a decade of childhood sexual abuse, being transparent about being a survivor of campus sexual assault. And my husband, like so many other black men, because of broken systems, also, um, you know, has a past and his own challenges. And so there are many people that felt I didn't fit the bio. I don't have a college degree. In the United States Senate and the House of Representatives in totality, there are 21 members that do not have a four-year degree. Now, I don't have a degree because I don't appreciate the value of education. I don't have a degree and I didn't finish it because life got in the way, which is the case for millions of Americans. My mother lost her job. She was then shortly diagnosed uh, with cancer. I survived uh, a campus sexual assault, which was a trigger for my many decades and years of childhood sexual abuse. You know, again, it's it's an all too familiar story for millions of Americans, but there are people who felt I had no business raising my hand, saying that I wanted to lead. So the change is about electing leaders that are transparent, that are empathetic, that are committed to movement and coalition building. And might I just add that there are plenty of people in Congress that have uh, master's degrees and juris doctorates, but who don't see people and don't govern with the people, and don't lift up the stories and the struggles of people, and harness their innovation and their ideas. And that is what I've pledged to do and have already been doing. 
Um, so the change is about engaging new voices. Um, we haven't given the full postmortem analysis of our campaign, but I'll give you a little bit of inside baseball. Our, our internals so far reveal that we expanded the electorate by 53%. And so wow. for Congratulations. all of those, thank you. And as you say, it's not that the oppressed, the marginalized, the abused are voiceless. It's that they're unheard. And we listened to them. We met people in community at bodegas and church basements uh, behind the wall. 250 incarcerated black men endorsed my candidacy and agreed to organize a minimum of three family members on the outside to get to the poll on Election Day. I think the change is about engaging and elevating and amplifying new voices. It's about governing with community. It's about movement and coalition building, both in the resistance to what is coming out of this White House every day, but also to advance progress and change. You know, in your book, you point out that hope is not magic. It is work. And I do believe ultimately that our victory was less a rejection and a referendum against hate and more a mandate for hope. And so the change is I'm not going to put hope and aspiration and vision on a shelf because the landscape is sobering uh, and because Democrats are in the minority. Um, the change is that we're going to be honest about the systemic inequalities and disparities that exist in this district that existed long before Trump descended an escalator at Trump Tower, that these disparities and inequities exist because of policies. Many policies that were even passed by Democrats. Uh, and so that's the change that we're trying to bring about. That is truth-telling, that is justice-seeking, that is movement and coalition-building, and leading from a place of empathy. And I know people are concerned about the polarization of our country and the tribalism, but I think the real issue here is that we have allowed dignity and humanity to be co-opted as if these are partisan values. And um, what I want to do is lift up the stories and the struggles, the innovation and the ideas of the people in the Massachusetts 7th to change the legacy of the Massachusetts 7th from being the most diverse and the most unequal district in our delegation on a bus ride from Cambridge to Roxbury, life expectancy drops by 30 years and median household income by $50,000. And that's the change that I hope to bring. You know, those disparities, what's so shocking about them is that they are so widespread across the country and uh, and you highlight how they are there. Another disparity that is uh, in Massachusetts is opioids. So I'd love to know what can we do around like the opioid crisis, both in a crisis that has hit your state, your city, and a crisis has hit so many cities across the country. Have you, do you have any ideas about what we can do about the opioid crisis from a sort of structured government level? Well, you know, you're my brother, so I only know how to tell you the truth, or at least my truth. And I think it does come back to these systemic inequalities and disparities. When I look at my father, you know, who has been um, in recovery for decades now, I know that when his trauma was treated, then he was no longer self-medicating and abusing opioids. And so that trauma was one that was shaped and informed by hardship, a hardship based on an ecosystem of his living conditions uh, that was created by policy. So to me, it, it still comes back to policymaking. It's about acknowledging these inequities and these disparities, the ways through policy we have contributed to the marginalization, the systemic oppression of people. It is also about 
acknowledging that we would have some best practices to draw from if we had treated the crack cocaine epidemic um, as a public health crisis instead of criminalizing people and treating it as a public safety crisis. We don't have those best practices. I'm encouraged that we are inclined to treat the opioid epidemic as a public health crisis and emergency, because it is. It is transcendent. It is pervasive. So the things that I'll be fighting for, federal investment in, is more on-demand treatment beds with longer stays. Also addressing the gender disparities that exist. By last uh, study, for every eight beds available for a man, there was only one available for a woman. We also need um, wraparound, culturally competent, trauma-sensitive and informed, and gender-specific care. And I also support safe injection sites. Now, one of the last questions, um, one of the questions that I ask everybody is, what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that's stuck with you? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, it's not any advice that someone gave me, but it's a lesson I learned, and it's run your own race. And that's literally and metaphorically. I'll tell you a quick story. So um, back in the day when I was like fit and actually worked out, which I'm trying to get back to that for my own wellness, I used to run like a 30-minute mile. I mean, I was slow. And so I started running and um, just on a treadmill. But eventually I got to like an eight-minute mile. And I was really kind of like feeling myself because I knew what that fitness journey had been. And um, I was at the gym and I was loving my workout outfit, which is also a critical component of a good workout. So I was loving my workout outfit. I was running. I had good form. My breathing was good. And I was so proud of myself. And uh, somebody got on the treadmill. A young lady got on the treadmill next to me. And she had a cuter outfit. And I, and I thought her, her running form was better and her breathing was better. She was running faster and harder. And I was so busy studying her that I fell on that treadmill and I cracked my tooth. And... It was a painful lesson, but an important one. And that is just run your own race. You know, I took the time to look over my shoulder and I was comparing myself to her. But, you know, I don't know what her journey had been and she didn't know what my journey had been. And, you know, we were two very different people, uh, two very different lived experiences and stories. Um, And so I got distracted uh, checking out, you know, her race when I needed to just be eyes on the prize focused on my own. Uh, and so that's the vice that I um, I try to remind myself every day. Just run your own race. And that's not just about a literal race, like around a track. It can be for a political race or anything. I like it. Where can people go to find out more information about... Uh, about what you're doing? Like, how how can they stay informed about your plans, about the things you support, and about you? Sure, you can go to my website at www.ayannapresley.com. That's A-Y-A-N-N-A-P-R-E-S-S-L-E-Y. I'm active on all social media platforms. Twitter is me, y'all. That is me. That's not anybody else. That's me. So you can, um, you know, always get me on Twitter or DM me. That's how you and I Got to know each other, right? It is. Uh, It was Twitter. (laughs) Yep. Instagram, Facebook. Um, And then we launched a hashtag called AP Equity Agenda because I've developed this robust legislative agenda to improve disparate outcomes in the Massachusetts 7th. It's called My Equity Agenda. And so I would love for you to check out the hashtag, hashtag AP Equity Agenda. You can also use that as a hashtag to give me ideas or just to ask questions. Boom. Well, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod to the People. You are a friend of the pod, and I can't wait to have you back. All right. Thank you. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod to the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week.
Ready for an amazing deal? BreezeLine's fiber-powered internet starting at $19.99 per month offers the reliability you deserve and security you can trust. Whether you're streaming, gaming, or working from home, we've got all your needs covered with speeds up to 1 gig and our two-year price lock guarantee. This deal gets even better with two free months of internet, free equipment, and free Wi-Fi your way to protect against cyber threats. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires July 8th, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, whew, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up. It can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people.